You're listening to the Million Praying Moms podcast, where we believe every mom is uniquely designed by God for his purpose, but also a part of something much bigger than she could ever be alone. Authors and moms, Erin Mooring and Brooke McLaughlin. Hey, that's us. Hey, it is. We're going to help you make prayer your first and best response to the challenges of parenting. Listen in on real life conversations with the experts about real issues parents face today and learn practical ways to focus on Christ as you seek wisdom and hope for the difficult job of raising children in today's world. If you're ready to handle life with grace because you've been in the presence of God, you're in the right place. Here are your hosts, teachers, writers, speakers, moms, and lovers of all things cozy, comfortable, and coffee-related, Brooke and Erin. Hey there, friends. You're listening to episode five of the Million Praying Moms podcast. Erin, a lot of our listeners know that you and I have been talking about the issues Christian parents face today for several years now. We've been just doing it in a slightly different platform. Yeah, that's right. For the last two years or so, Brooke and I have been coming to you live on Facebook for weekly episodes of what used to be called Mob Live. Mob, of course, standing for Mothers of Boys. That's really where the whole idea of talking about important issues started. And we did something like 50 episodes over that two-year span, many of which you asked us to make available in a podcast format. So that's what we decided to do. Right. So over the summer of 2019, we're going to be mixing in some of our favorite older episodes of Mob Live and offering them here as podcasts. Now, believe me, there were some absolutely fantastic episodes, and we do not want you to miss out. Erin, I think the Mob Live episode that ranks up there as one of my all-time favorites is the one we did with David Thomas. We love us some David Thomas because he isn't just someone who talks about raising boys and girls. He is in the trenches as a counselor at Daystar Counseling in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, we love David. He has been a longtime friend of our ministry. And Brooke, I know both of us have dog-eared versions of several of his books, one of which is always on my nightstand or on my bookshelf next to my desk because I need it all the time. I keep his books close too. A little over a year ago, we hosted David on Mob Live to talk about an issue that we think is of the utmost importance to today's parents, mainly because it's more prevalent now than it ever has been before. I mean, when I was in school, people got bullied. I got bullied some. You probably did too, Erin. I mean, it's not, it's a, it's an average childhood thing that most children have to deal with. But what makes the issue of bullying different now is that the ways that our children can be bullied are only increasing as their access to technology expands every day. Right. One of the things I really loved about this interview with David was that he helped us really define what bullying is and what it isn't. It's 100% true to say that bullying is a big deal, and moms and dads today need help knowing both how to handle things when their child is being bullied and when their child is the bully. But as we talked to David, um, he helped us see that as a society, we've become quick to label things as bullying that really aren't actually bullying. And that part was really, really eye-opening to me. It really was to me too. I just found it so helpful to have those working definitions David Thomas is the Director of Family Counseling at Daystar Counseling in Nashville, Tennessee, and the co-author of eight books. Wow, eight books, guys, including some that are on our nightstands, <laughs> like the best-selling Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Voice. He is a frequent guest on national television and podcasts and has been featured in publications like USA Today. He speaks across the country. I have loved hearing him speak every time I've had the opportunity. He recently completed the book, Are My Kids on Track? The 12 Emotional, Social, and Spiritual Milestones Your Child Needs to Reach. He and his wife, Connie, have a daughter, twin sons, and a feisty yellow lab named Owen that actually gets to work with him in his practice in Nashville. It's pretty cool how they incorporate dog therapy. Yeah. Into, into what they do as a dog lover. You guys know, I love that. You can follow him on social media at raising boys and girls and find the latest parenting resources from him and his two partners at raising boys and girls.com. 
But before we dive into our chat with David, we want to take a moment to tell you about the summer edition of Pray the Word Journal. Yes, it is available for pre-order right now. Our summer 2019 edition takes us on a prayer journey through the book of the Psalms, and I think it's a perfect timing for summertime. I really just think it's great for the down months of summer. If you need a clean slate, a fresh start, or to refocus your worship on the things of God instead of all the chaos of what's going on in your life, this edition is perfect for your summer. You can go ahead and pre-order your copy right now at PrayTheWordJournal.com. Pray the Word Journal is the prayer journal for busy moms. Brooke and I know this because we are busy moms, and it is our prayer journal, and it has helped moms from all walks of life make prayer a practical priority. Go ahead and pre-order yours today at www.praythewordjournal.com. Okay, Erin, I'm so excited for them to hear this message. Let's dive into our show for today with counselor, author, speaker, husband, and dad, David Thomas. Thank you. Those were incredibly kind words. I will say out of all the things you all said about me in that introduction. I loved that you included friend of this ministry because I am, I'm a friend and a fan of the mob society. So it is a genuine honor. Anytime I get a chance to talk with you all. So glad you know that I'm uh, a friend, but I'm also a fan. I love what you do and, and grateful, you know, even today that, that you all will bring us together as parents that we can have really important conversations and this obviously being one. And, and as was shared, um, most importantly, I'm a husband and a father, uh, and the work that I do vocationally is that I'm the director of family counseling at a place called Daystar Counseling Ministries. In fact, we're in my office right now. We work with the pediatric population, so we serve children, adolescents, uh, and their families, and we do that with individual counseling, group counseling. I do a lot of family counseling, and then we run some camps, day camps, and overnight camps as a part of the work that we do, but just been a part of this ministry for over 20 years now, and I really am so committed and and passionate about this place and this work, and grateful I get to do it, and then after that, I've had the opportunity to to write some books about, um, as you all shared, about boy development and different aspects of parenting, and then have the privilege of, of traveling around the country and talking and engaging and connecting with parents to talk around a number of these topics. Yeah. If you remember, we had one of your partners in ministry, uh, Sissy Goff on the show. Uh, I don't know, a couple months ago. Um, yeah. and we talked about, um, emotional milestone, emotional, behavioral, mental, spiritual milestones. And, um, that was a great conversation. And, um, the book we were referencing is called wild things, which, I mean, but all the things we talk about here that could not more accurately describe (laughs) our boys, but I was going to get my copy to show and be like, here, I have it here, but it's actually on my nightstand. So (laughs) that's how used it is. And I'm in my office right now. So it is not here, but, um, wild things, the art of nurturing boys is the book we were mentioning that I have dog eared because as they grow older, I have to read it again (laughs) and remember the things you said about it. (laughs) You're kind. I'm so thankful you all had Sissy Goff on the show. Isn't she remarkable? She oh. was so good. We loved her. Like we, you know, we've known you for years, David, but we had never really had the opportunity to interact with her. And we love her, you know, just as much, just enjoyed her so much. So yeah, we're very, very grateful for everything you guys are doing for families, um, you know, both locally in your communities and, and, you know, globally with your speaking and writing. So thank you all so right. much. Thank you. Right. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's dive into our topic today because we have a lot to talk about and I feel like we could probably go on for a couple hours and we can't do that. So let's dive in. Um, I think a good place to start is to come up with a working definition for what bullying actually is. So, you know, as a parent, my kids, um, my baby just turned 11 yesterday and my oldest is getting ready to turn 13 next month. And so, you know, I've experienced, I think probably most people listening have experienced situations where our kids have encountered something and we're like, was that bullying? Was, was that what that was? Like, I'm not sure if it actually was bullying or if it's just my mama heart saying, Ooh, I don't like it when kids treat my kids that way. 
um, we don't want to overreact. So what is a good definition of bullying that we can build our whole conversation on today? Well, Brooke, can I say first, I'm so glad you are asking that question. And I want to challenge every parent who's a part of today's conversation. Let's all ask that question. Like, I think that is the best place to start. Like, is this bullying or is this conflict? Like we'll talk a little bit more as we go forward about the the difference, but I think we are quick to attach that label at times where it fits and at times where it doesn't. So there are hundreds of definitions out there and and I'm not going to say my definition is right. I'm just going to say it's the definition that I've found that's simple, that's basic, that works the best for me in categorizing it. And, And I would say bullying is the abuse or mistreatment of someone vulnerable abuse or mistreatment of someone vulnerable. And a part of why that definition works for me is that a a common definition, and here we are jumping in on our uh, more about the topic of boys, you know, oftentimes people will define bullying, and I don't think this is a wrong definition, but unwanted aggressive behavior and an imbalance of power. And, you know, one of the things I talk about early, you all know, in fact, chapter one of my book on boys is I talk about how boys are aggressive. By mm-hmm. nature. So I don't necessarily love that particular definition because the, I think boys can be aggressive in a good moment under the mm-hmm. best of circumstances. And if we are just attaching that word to our definition, sometimes we can categorize boys in the wrong place. So that's, again, my preference. That's a part of where I would land with the abuse or mistreatment of someone. Right. And that could look like different things. Vulnerable can mean different things. It can mean someone smaller than them. It could mean someone mentally incapable of understanding. Um, it could mean someone weaker than them. You know, any any of those could fit the definition of vulnerable. But I really like what you just said, because as you know, as you and I have talked about before, I have two of those pretty aggressive boys. Um, in fact, that's what led me, you know, to come to Aaron all these years ago and say, hey, let's start a ministry for mothers of boys was because I had these really aggressive boys, um, one in particular, more aggressive than the other. And sometimes his behavior has been labeled as bullying when I actually think it was more just his like he's not really trying to hurt anybody he really is just a naturally aggressive kid. And I don't necessarily as a parent want to parent that out of him. I actually want to teach him to control it and to, to work with it. But our, our culture today really just hates anything, um, you know, anything that is that of that natural boyish bent. I think there's just really a, you know, a whole wave against that right now. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. It feels so important that we define that accurately. It really Mm -hmm. does. And I I think that's a great bridge into that piece I mentioned a little bit earlier of just really thinking about, and and not just within this category, but I think with all categories, we talk so much about helping kids differentiate in all categories of life. You know, we're so quick to throw out words and attach those to our experience that aren't accurate in a lot of categories. Like I think about how often I say things like I'm starving, you know, and I've never been starving. You know, that's not a state that is true for me, but I'm hungry a lot. And so, but I'm quick to throw out words that aren't accurate or correct. You know, the difference between a problem and a hassle or a crisis and a hurdle. And so I think it's one more place where we want to help coach our kids to differentiate. Like, is this, is this frustrating? Is this a conflict with a friend or is this a bullying situation? And again, it starts with us asking that question ourselves. Is this abuse or mistreatment or is this just frustration and conflict? Mm-hmm. And, and think, every disagreement is not bullying. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and conflict is a vehicle, an important vehicle within our kids' social development. Like it's a part of how they develop as social beings. It's a part of what we know as adults even can bring us to greater intimacy in relationship. Like if I've worked through conflict with someone it can take us to a place of deeper connection and intimacy. You know, yeah, I don't want relationships that are void of conflict. Right, right. And, and I've said for a while now that, um, you know, people who love each other do hard things and dealing with conflict or even putting yourself in the, in the position as a mother. And I would imagine you could speak into this as a father um, when your kids are hurt, whether it's just a conflict or it actually is bullying your emotions will just, Sometimes I know mine just sometimes 
skyrocket and I have a really hard time setting them aside to look at the situation from an objective standpoint. I imagine that that may also be true for fathers, although I know men and women, um, you know, handle conflict or experience conflict different sometimes. Um, but it's, I think it's an important point for us to say, not everything is bullying and you really need to check yourself. Is it actually bullying when measured against this definition or is it just something you need to help your child through? Yes, absolutely. Very good. And I think, you know, part of why I wanted to camp out in that space is I think unless we really do embrace that idea that conflict is not only important, but necessary for our kids to develop fully in terms of their social development, then I think it's really easy to attach a lot of their experiences to bullying. And, and as opposed to really seeing it for what it is and, and believing and valuing that conflict really is a part of what strengthens them and is, again, necessary for their social development. And in most cases, it's the parent who is labeling, labeling something as bullying. So it's the most important for us to know what bullying actually is, because we're the ones usually saying, oh, this kid's being a bully. It's not, I don't ever hear my kids say, this person was bullying me. They'll say, this is what happened. And often it's an adult labeling it as bullying. So it's most important for us to have the proper definition and viewpoint when going to those situations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and yeah. you know, that just is a perfect example of what I talk so often with parents about as kids learn more from observation than information. So they're observing us, they're hearing us, what we're saying is landing on them and they're absorbing that. And so you're right, they're quick to label something inaccurately because it's what they've heard. And, mm -hmm. and the vulnerability to uh, maybe a good word to attach to it is over label, I think is already there for kids and adults in this particular moment in time in history. In fact, Sissy probably talked about that when you all discussed the emotional milestones that it's so rare that we would anymore hear a child say things like, I feel worried. They'll say things like I have anxiety mm -hmm. or rather I don't, often hear kids say anymore, I feel sad. They'll say, I feel depressed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, and, and we talk often about, you know, when, when we were growing up and actually I'm much older than you all clearly, but when I was growing up, you know, the, the thing that if I were working through something that was really frustrating with my parents, you know, the angriest thing I knew to say, and most of us would say is that I'm going to run away from home. Mm -hmm. you know, I almost never hear kids report anymore that they're going to run away from home. But what do kids in this day and age say? They'll say, I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah. 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 I'm going to kill myself. Like yeah. the scariest thing really that any of us could say. And so mm -hmm. that's but one more example of where we over labeled, attach these really strong words to things that don't always fit. And so I think it's back to your great point, Aaron, of paying really close attention to how am I labeling it as a parent, which we're acknowledging is landing on them and they're absorbing so that they can accurately label their experiences as well, whether that's their emotional experience or their social experience. Yeah. That's a great segue. Um, Cause you just said, yeah, when we were kids, like I remember threatening to run away and like running away to, I lived on a corner, but I just ran to like the other side of the big evergreen tree on the corner. Like, I mean, that was like, I was so angry. I was doing that. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is a perfect illustration of how our times have changed. So in your years of ministry, what are the ways you've seen bullying change over the, you know, in, during this time, we're talking about how we've labeled it over the years, our feelings and all of that. Um, I think what it used to be isn't necessarily the same thing as it is today in the, in the world of bullying. And it's always been a, a matter of the heart, I'm sure, but what it looks like has changed. Is that, is that your experience? It is my experience. And, and I think first and most, it really is the overlabeling and we've attached that word so strongly. And I think um, there are a lot of things that have spilled out of that, particularly in our, our school environments. But I would say, secondly, I think, the exposure that kids have had to a lot of violence in media, on screen, you know, films, television, video games, you know, that exposure can't help but have some degree of trickle down effect on kids. And so I think there is a violent, a more violent response that we're certainly seeing in what's being reported in our news, even as a matter of days ago, yeah. um, on so many levels. And that's physical violence and sexual violence. There's so many 
categories we could speak into, but those differences are significant, significant. In fact, I was sitting in uh, my office recently. This was after the Parkland incident, and I was meeting with a first grade boy, and his school had been, as many schools around our country were doing, were running drills, safety drills at school, and his school's instruction had been to, to him, to all the kids, you know, if you see a stranger walking in the hallway that you don't recognize, you need to tell a grown up immediately. Um, and this little boy in tears in my office said, I saw him that afternoon. He's like, David, I saw a man in the hallway today and I think he was a fourth grader's dad, but I'm not hundred percent sure, but I didn't tell anybody racked with, oh. I mean, this little guy was just swimming in fear in tears reporting this to me. And I was sitting with him, you all, and thinking, I can't even believe we're having this conversation. Like, I I can't believe we live in this time. Like this little first grade boy is terrified that he didn't follow through with the safety drill that we're having to do with elementary age children with regularity because we're genuinely afraid because it has happened in our country that someone would walk in and open fire. Like, I just think that to me is such a picture of one of the many differences that exist in this day and age. And yeah. It, ways that spills over. Yeah, it does. You know, I think, um, it, in some ways this conversation goes back to this quite often. And, and I think sometimes we become desensitized to it, although maybe the bigger issue is an issue of desensitization, but, um, you know, what our children are looking at is what they think is normal and what they have access to now through, um, you know, I mean, when we were growing up, like literally when I was growing up, we didn't have all that many channels to choose from, honestly, on the television. I mean, we probably were one of the first people in our community that even had a, a computer. But the games that I had on the computer were Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. Like that was it. (laughs) I didn't have anything else. And my brother had an Atari, but it it had like Frogger on it, you know, and, and uh, Pac-Man. Exactly. Right. I think an Oregon trail here, you know, right. right? So the, the, you know, think of the things that our kids are playing nowadays on their, you know, on their very sophisticated, um, you know, Xboxes and Playstations, and I don't even know all the names of all of them, um, or even on their phones right in their faces that are teaching them this is normal. And and I, I would say that parents would say, well, it's a game. They know that's not real. They know it's not normal. But how much does that actually affect? Like what? It, help us not blow this off as parents, David. As, as what, what does the research say the effect actually is on them to watching these kind of, of scenarios over and over again and actually participating in it as the person who is the shooter, who is going after the, you know, who is, who is um, going after the, the man on the, t- you know, what effect is that having on them actually, really? You know, it's interesting. We had a psychologist, psychologist uh, do an uh, in-service with our staff recently and talk around some of the newest data and interestingly enough, um, and, and we're constantly getting access to new and newer data, but it's not conclusive. We don't have the kind of conclusive data in that category that we do in some other categories mm-hmm. in terms of the spillover effect. What we do have conclusive data around, however, is, you know, as we have watched brain activity with kids when they're gaming for extended periods of time, we know without a doubt at a certain point left to that device for an extended period of time, it can start to trigger the, excuse me, to trigger the reward circuitry, to release dopamine, to, you know, some of the addictive tendencies that start to happen when we abuse substances, when we do a number of different things. And so that we know with great certainty. And so what we do know with certainty, that's a long answer to your question, is that brain activity changes over time. We also know enough to know that, you know, left to that for a long extended period of time, we can train the brain to be more attention deficit over time. And so those things we know with certainty. The other thing we know for certainty, we, we cite a study that was done out of UCLA in our newest book on my kids on track. And we talk about, it was done with a group of sixth graders and they split the group in half. Everybody had had access to a device. They gave kids 
a simple test where they were asked to read the emotions on the faces of people. And then for the next five days, half of the group continued using their devices as normal, and the other half had zero access to screens for a period of time. All they could do was interact with people. Mm -hmm. They came back and gave the exact same test, and you all know the findings. I mean, we all know what happened. The the group that hadn't had access to to the screens not only scored higher, they scored significantly higher after only five days, five days. And so that's data. That's an example of, you know, only one study that's been done that is some of the data that we know that to the degree that kids don't have those opportunities to read the emotions of others, to develop empathy, to practice these social and emotional skills that are foundational to all healthy relationships, they're not fully, we're kind of back to where we started, developing socially and emotionally in all the ways that we want them to. So that we have some conclusive data around and there's no doubt in my mind to the degree that kids spend more time plugged in in ways that we just didn't have access to. And I love that you drew that out because I'll so often, you know, hear parents report, I never did those things. And I said, because we only had the Atari. (laughs) Who's to say that if we'd all had access to the Wii or the Xbox or PlayStation, we have been every bit as plugged in potentially well. So it's not that we were more noble at that point. We just didn't have access. No, you're right. I have a cousin. He was a younger cousin than me that got a Game Boy when I was probably, you know, 13, 14 years old. And that was the first, like, maybe handheld device that I remember. And I, I didn't have access to any of that at my house, but he would let me use it every once in a while when I was with him. And I remember even then, like, I never wanted to give it back to him. I never wanted to share it. I just wanted to hog it. And I can see how, had I had access to those things, I would have been vulnerable to falling right into the same pattern as, as you know, so many of our kids do today. So if those things are true, can I hold on one more thing? Can you address, I think there's one more thing that bullying has changed over the years. Could you address your experience with cyberbullying? Like, is that something you're hearing a lot more about? Because we're talking about kids, you know, being more violent or what they're threatening is more violent and that because of their exposure, but then on the other end of the spectrum is all this access to technology is providing another avenue for bullying, right? Yes, absolutely. And and thank you for remembering to mention that. I, that is that is absolutely one of the categories of access where we're seeing impact and opportunity. And and I would say before I'd even comment on the effects of bullying, I would just comment first and then bullying and being a subcategory of this of just kids having access to say whatever it is that they're thinking, you know, social media has been one of the worst enemies to kids developing restraint and regulation, in my opinion. Can you say that again? Can you just say that? (laughs) Has been one of the greatest enemies to kids developing restraint and regulation. We're invited, we're all invited to comment on everything in real time, which isn't helpful for any one of us. I'm not just talking about kids and adolescents for grownups as well. And, you know, it's, I, I was talking with a friend recently about just this reality that just because I have an opinion doesn't mean it's worth expressing. It doesn't, but social media has encouraged me to express that and convinced me on some level that I do always have something worth posting, worth yes. commenting on. So that being shared, <clears throat> there's the bigger category. And then where bullying fits within that is, if I'm in a tough moment, you know, if I'm angry with a friend, if I'm frustrated over something that's taken place at school today, I'm invited out of that lack of restraint and regulation to comment, to push back, to shove verbally through that medium. And so I think it's just an extension of invitation. And you all know, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir because you all believe this so strongly too. You know, it's just kind of back to that reality again of when we were growing up. If I went home frustrated with a friend on a Friday afternoon, I would have forgotten by Monday morning. <laughs> like it's yeah. not so that I would have even worked that through, but I would have forgotten. We would have mm-hmm. entered in a different space by Monday morning, but I could keep that conversation, that back and forth. I could feed that frustration and anger over the course of the weekend now differently, which yeah. is where I think that comes into play. Yeah, that is so good. Okay. So <clears throat> let's assume that um, a child really is in a genuine bullying situation. Uh, All that we've talked about 
we actually are in that situation. What are some signs that you have seen that you could help a parent know to look for to know whether or not their child is being bullied? It's a great question. I would say there are multiple factors that can be at play. The most common that we see in our work, and this I think lines up with the research as well, would be disrupted sleep. Uh, wanting to avoid going to school, presenting with some kind of symptoms, oftentimes like headaches or stomach aches that seem to happen over a prolonged period repeatedly, even potentially made up symptoms sometimes with kids, but some psychosomatic symptoms, some physical symptoms. Uh, Declining grades is a common uh, factor or, or cue for us as parents. Now, again, that one can be kind of tricky because there are a lot of reasons that could bring that particular Uh, transition about with kids, but particularly for a kid who's pretty conscientious and on their game academically, Mm -hmm. if we see a decline with grades, that's something of significance. And oftentimes that child will present with an avoidance. I don't want to go to school or I feel so sick today that I don't think that I can. So those, and then I would say maybe a fifth would be a change in habits. So a child who stops eating or a child who is overeating, for example, um, or a child who had a pretty strong desire to want to play outside after school or be with friends or want to spend time with friends over the weekend who's avoiding a lot of social situations. So things that feel very out of character over an extended period of time, not a day, but over an extended period of time. Every kid can have an off day where they don't quite see themselves or we're seeing evidence of some out of character things, but that showing up with consistency. Yeah. So we're looking for a change in their habits over a period of time. Um, not just one bad day. I think that's a, that's important. And, you know, I want to ask this question as well, because I thought of it while, while you were talking, let's say, you know, just to kind of go back to your original definition of, of bullying, at what age do you think a child actually can be a bully? I see a lot of situations where um, we have moms who have very little children, and let's say they're playing at the park, you know, a five-year, five-year-old's playing at the park, um, three, even three-year-old's playing at the park. Is it possible for a five-year-old or a three-year-old to really be bullying another child? Or is this maybe more... Um, a case of, you know, that natural one child being more naturally aggressive than the other, simply not knowing how to deal with conflict, not, not understanding how to share. Um, I, I feel like we need to, to hone in on that a little bit more and developmentally address, you know, is that even possible? Yes. No, it's a great question. And, and I would say, first off, it is possible. Okay. Now, what I'd say second to that is that you know, what would be most likely with a child that young would be that it's not a conscious process, you know, but it's a spillover effect that's happening. But I think it is. And in, in fact, I'd even jump into, you know, some of the symptoms of a child who is the bully. And, and this might answer some of the question you're asking about how young, you know, more oftentimes what we're going to see is at play with a child, not always, but more oftentimes is a child who has a, a disconnect with or an interruption in attachment or connection with a parent, their healthy adult, their safe adult. And so that oftentimes will interrupt their social development in a way that a child will become more abusive or be okay. mistreated with peers okay. because they haven't experienced that healthy back and forth. And then if there's uh, violence or volatility in a home, they're simply kind of back to the modeling that what they're absorbing, they're mimicking what's being seen in that setting. So it wouldn't be that, they intend harm on their peers, but they're simply mimicking. This is what I see and observe in my parents. And therefore I'm going to play this out socially with my peers. Okay. I think that's a great point to make that. Yes, it can happen that young. Yes. A four-year-old could be a bully, but it's not necessarily intentional bullying like a third grader Mm -hmm. or a high schooler might do. It is, just this is what they see. This is what they know. This is what they do. So yes, it's still bullying because it's still, they see someone younger, weaker, whatever, and they abuse them. But a, a preschooler, it might not be as an intentional. And that could be the case as they're older too, although they develop more um, logic and reasoning and, and making choices for themselves as they get older. But um I, I love that you're that you're saying that yes, it is possible there, but 
it's not necessarily going to be them thinking, I want to be a bully right now. I want to take advantage of someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what other signs would you say then, it, like you, you kind of di- dove into that a little bit, but we talked about um, the disruption of regular habits for a child who's being bullied. What if you're just going about things and you, someone says, my child, your child is being the bully. What are some things you could be looking for, you know, to kind of curb that before it becomes an issue? What signs would there be for your child being the bully? More oftentimes we're going to see, in addition to that disruption in attachment or connection with parents and violence or volatility or high conflict at home, mm-hmm. we're going to also see some consistent patterns in aggression with a child in terms of their behavior accompanied a lot of times by a lack of empathy as well. Uh, that's a key factor. And again, that's maybe another great place to hit pause and say, just in terms of every child's social development, some kids are going to be a little more skilled in terms of empathy and some kids are going to be weaker. I tend to say empathy is like a muscle and it's more developed in some kids and it's less developed. So any parent who's hearing me say that, that's not necessarily indicative that your child is a bully. It's just they may be slower in that thread of development, slower to hit that particular milestone. But I would say that one can oftentimes be there. A, a child who's maybe obsessed with popularity as well. And, and every yeah. kid can go in and out of moments or seasons where they seem a little more consumed or fixated. But over an extended period of time, a child just seems to be obsessed with, with popularity, consumed with their ranking in the pecking order over an extended period of time, because that's another example of a phenomenon I talk about with boy development. You know, when boys hit stage three of their development, roughly between nine and 12 years of age, they'll all go in and out of moments of being consumed with their ranking in the pecking order. So that's a normal part of a boy's social development, but consumed over a period of time. And, an, and it, it is an obsession or a fixation that they don't seem to step out of. I would say, um, so I was an elementary teacher um, before I stayed home with my kids and even boys and girls alike, that nine to 12 year old age, I, that is most commonly when I would see students start to make bad choices towards their peers because they wanted to fit in. And it would be students that I went, really, that kid did that? And it was all about trying to be part of the in crowd by putting down someone who wasn't. And, um, and it was, there were some really, really good kids that fall, that fall prey to that. And I even remember from my growing up and this is talking. So if you're a parent of girls, it happens in girls too. It looks, it looks different, but it does. I remember making some very bad choices in that fourth, fifth grade year towards people that I considered friends so that I could be better friends with a popular group. And I have told that story to my boys and said, I am so not proud of that. And nobody would have looked at it then and said, like, you were a bully. I didn't punch anybody. I didn't whatever, but I will totally label it that now because that's exactly what I did. And it was important for them to understand that it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't whatever. It was an emotional, it was a mental thing that I was doing. And I don't want them to ever be a part of that to just to fit in to, or for any reason. But um, so if you're a boy mom or a girl mom, it can look like a variety of things, but it is often trying to fit in and not out of aggression or not out of, mm-hmm. you know, um, a broken home. It's just trying to be popular. Yeah, my the definition that I was always told growing up of what a bully is, is someone who wants to feel better about themselves. And the way that they make that happen is to make you feel worse about yourself. Um, but, and, 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 you know, that's kind of what you're describing. And I've seen that even in, um, you know, as our children, David, one of the things that you told me another time that we talked was that uh, we were specifically talking about boys, uh, but I, I would imagine this applies to girls as well, is that when kids reach that age that we were just talking about, nine, 12, you know, right before they hit their teenage years, they are more aware of what is happening around them than they ever have been before. Socially, emotionally, physically, you know, their bodies are changing. Spiritually, they're starting to ask those really hard questions because they're trying to own their faith and and not just accepting what mom and dad say about it anymore. Um, They're so aware. And so maybe some of these children 
for the first time ever, are aware of where they are in the pecking order. They, they didn't know before. And all of a sudden, they've been like, oh, this is where I am. And I don't really like where I am. I need to get out of this somehow. And so they'll be willing to do things that they would never have done or never thought they would have done in order to you know, not be the one who gets bullied or not be the one that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a desire to get out of something painful in some cases. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think about the, you know, the, the famous statement of hurt people, hurt people mm-hmm. you know, and, and how much truth there is to that. I did a family session with a mom and her son recently, and he's a third grade boy. And he was telling a story about a kid in his class that he'd had a lot of conflict with and within describing it, he said this, he said, my mom and I have been talking some about what's happening with him at home. Some things that we know and some things that we don't know. And we both decided he's probably really hurting. And I remember hearing this boy say that and say it in that way and thinking how remarkable and how rare it is that I'll hear a boy report in that way. They've had that kind of conversation. And again, they weren't excusing the conflict. They were simply trying to understand. They weren't giving permission to a lot of what was happening. That was part of that conversation. So I'm not at all saying we give a permission slip, but so much of what they were describing still fit within that category of conflict, not bullying. And so it was so helpful to this boy to have those conversations with his mom in that way, where he was working to understand what's going on with this kid. And I do think that's so valuable that she didn't, as we discussed on the front side, front side, race straight to you're being bullied. And the second thing that this mom didn't do, which is a trap I think we can step into is intervening, intervening as opposed to um, supporting. And I think that's a really Hard place to walk out with the kids we love, but an easy trap to step into. Talk to us more about that, because I know some people have left questions on our Facebook page wanting to know exactly that. When do I step in and do something? When do I support my child and help them, them, you know, help them know how to handle it? And when do we get to the point where I, my child needs me to step in and protect them? Because, you know, we've had, we've had, we've been so blessed to have friends in our lives that we can go to when, when there's something wrong between our children, um, we have, you know, been able to go to them and say, let's help our kids work through this together. We've sat at our table. We have a picnic table that sits outside of our, uh, on our, our porch. We've sat together parent to parent, child to child, and tried to help them work through the conflict. We ha- we haven't been quick to say you're bullying, but we've just We've had this nice arrangement where we've had people that we can go to and talk through things. And then we very definitely have people in our lives that we have figured out the hard way that we can't go to them. We can't have that. We don't have that same relationship with them or that same permission to go to them. So how is a parent to know what they should do in those situations? And how to handle it with grace. Like, you know, (laughs) Especially if the other parent does not want to, you know, take accountability for it. Correct. And that path of what I call balancing support, it is, it's, it's like skating on ice. It's tricky. Mm -hmm. It's not always clear. Um, But I think there is an equation that I talk a lot about that I think is a safe place to land a hundred percent of the time. And that's the equation of empathy and questions. I just think when you're unsure, that's a really great place to start. Start with empathy, buddy. That sounds really hard. Spending some time in that space and then moving toward questions. What do you want to do with that? And, and I like the idea of that for a lot of reasons, mainly because I just think we're on target a hundred percent of the time when we meet our kids with empathy. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, Great modeling. I think it's a significant part of their emotional development. But I think when we move toward questions, it's equally honoring because it's it's sending this really strong message of I think you're a smart, courageous, resourceful kid. And I want to hear your ideas first and mine second. Now, mm-hmm. if they're stuck, if if um, they don't know what to do or they don't have an answer to that question, sometimes we may want to step in with some brainstorming and ideas. Sometimes we may, we may want to just hit pause and say, think on that. You know, give it some thought and let's let's circle back. I'm going to go for a run right now. You go play with a dog. Let's get back together in 30 minutes because that may be time needed for us to kind of work through some of the emotions of what we've just heard and think of how we want to respond going forward. I think 
responding when we hear our kids report something concerning or alarming is going to inevitably trigger a lot of emotions in us. And I think when we respond in emotionally charged moments, it almost always equals mistakes. It's like yeah. what happens when I go to the grocery store on an empty stomach, you know, I just buy pints and pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> So when I start talking in those moments with my kids and giving advice, I think I rob them of opportunities to be resourceful. And I think I send the opposite message. I, I think I'm not only saying, not saying you're courageous, smart, resourceful, resilient. I think I'm saying, you know what, you're not bright enough. You're not brave enough to figure this out. So let me just tell you what to do. Let me give you a script. That's so powerful. Grab them by the hand and say, we're going we're gonna to get in the car and drive right back to school right now. There is an in-service meeting going on and we're going to catch Miss Jones on the way out of that and have a conversation about what's happened, which I don't believe is a helpful practice. I don't. Now, I very much believe there's a place in time where we partner with our kids and go in and sit down with a teacher. I, a teacher, I very much believe in that practice, but only after we've done some empathy and questions and given them an opportunity, even a failed opportunity to test drive resourcefulness on their own, finding their voice on their own. And, and for some kids, I think that takes longer. Um, and I have a, a story about my daughter that she's given me permission to share, but when she was in third grade, my daughter is uh, an, a remarkable young woman and she bends more toward introversion and, and part of her, particular individual journey has really been finding her voice as a young woman. And that was particularly hard for her as an elementary age girls. It can be for a lot of girls. And she early into her third grade year came home reporting that there was the boy in the cubby above her who was never prepared for class, according to her, who was always asking her for a pencil. And the first three days in a row, she gave him one. And then she reported us, I'm tired of giving him a pencil. He should show up with his own supplies. And I'm like, it sounds like he sure should. But it sounds like he doesn't need to as long as you're willing to supply him with this on a regular basis. <laughs> I'm hearing you say you're frustrated, but it seems like it might be working for him. And we laughed together and did some brainstorming and role played, which I believe is a really great experiential tool for kids. Role played what it would look like for her to use her voice. And then we role played again and again and again and again and again. And that went on for not just days, but weeks and weeks turned into months. And I found myself gripping the table when she would come home and report in on this incident again. But what I realized is it's not problematic enough for her yet. Like we've, we've talked, we brainstormed, we practiced what it would look like for her to use her voice, but she's not ready to do that. Now, let me say as a side note, if she'd been harmed or mistreated or abused in this situation, of course, I would have stepped in earlier. But for me as a parent in that moment, I realized like this is this is an opportunity for growth here that I really want to give her. Mm-hmm. Take a guess at how many months it took her to find her voice with this guy. Six? Eight, oh, nine, oh my goodness. We're at the 11th hour, like school was almost over. And I really, wow. thought, I'm going to come outside of myself by the end. <laughs> but I, and I went back and forth, like, should I go in? Should I, you know, meet with her teacher with her? Should I? take care of this kid myself on Tuesday <laughs> every day, you know, all the things that we think about as parents. But for me in that moment, I realized she's not being harmed, but she's not finding her voice and I'm committed to it. And she finally got worn out with him about my day. And evidently one day, according to her, and then her teacher would later, later relay this story, yelled at him, I'm not your mother. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Good for her. I'm not your mother. Yes. <laughs> So I think we do have to give some kids a longer runway um, to practice resourcefulness. Again, hear me saying I would never have waited for that period of time if she were being abused or mistreated or mm-hmm. But in that, I would just define that example of conflict and she didn't yeah. get frustrated enough for a period of time. Yeah. So if a child is getting, you know, if she had been getting harmed um, or abused in some way <clears throat> and you felt you needed to go and do something about it, what, what are the steps that you as a parent might have taken 
in, in the, you know, some of our moms are concerned, like, you know, I feel like I need to step in and do something, but I really, in the midst of all this, I still really want to represent Christ. Well, I still like, I don't want to lose my testimony when I go and, and, you know, bless somebody out at the school or whatever. What are the, what are the appropriate steps, maybe both to prepare yourself to have those conversations, but then also when you're in the middle of trying to protect your child in the situation where you need to protect your child, what does that look like? Yes. So I think after we've done that brainstorming, after we've role played, given them an opportunity that they've either taken and hasn't worked or has worked to some degree, I think the next step is saying, hey, let's go in together. Not I'm going to go in and take care of this for you, but let's go in together and talk with your teacher. Because the other thing that's hard to acknowledge right now, but important to acknowledge is sometimes we're only working with half the information. Mm -hmm. We're only getting one side of the story. And so a teacher may reveal there's actually more going on. And I couldn't begin to tell you how many parents I'd intersected with in this moment who said, actually, when I went in, it was a different story than what I had been told. And so that's part of where giving it a little time and space sometimes can be helpful. But sitting down in partnership, I'm going to say before that meeting would take place with our child and with our child's teacher, we would really want to check ourselves. In fact, Aaron, I'm going to laugh with you. I would absolutely have to be well caffeinated before I could <laughs> and maybe have gone for a five mile run before that. Yep, so, me too. Yep. So I got myself in check. And, and I think it's back to the way you asked that question. Like, I want to do that with grace. I want to do that where I reflect Christ. Like I'm, I'm not interested in being a wrecking ball in those moments. I want to be in partnership with my child's teacher. Like how can we solve this together? I'm not on the opposite team. I'm on the same team with you. And I think there's something about going in with our kids together that assumes and communicates that. And, and Aaron, I don't know if you'd agree or not agree with this as a former educator, but I'm married to a teacher too. And my wife would say if she was sitting here like 99% of the time, when a parent comes to me in that spirit, like I'm on the same team, how can we problem solve? We can find our way through it. Mm-hmm. Like we can, but if you show up, like I'm the bad guy, like it just, it, I, I think it's a bad scenario all the way around. I, I, and I don't think it models something healthy and helpful for our kids too. Like I want my kids to know I'm on your team and I'm on your teacher's team too. Mm-hmm. We're on the same team. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important. Now, clearly there are going to be times where that's not enough. And, and maybe a teacher isn't advocating enough where we're going to have to go to the next level at that point. But I don't ever believe that's helpful until we've stopped off in that place and made sure we've got all the information and given a teacher an opportunity to be in partnership with us. And I know that we're not talking about like a, a church situation necessarily with other believers, but the Bible clearly states that we go to one another and if that doesn't work, then we move. And that's exactly what you're saying is modeling that. And, you know, Brooke and I would advocate over and over again, like, praying over the whole situation before you go there because you know that having that perspective of God going with you into it will help you to not blow your lid will help you to keep that you know that peace and and that grace in the conversation even when it doesn't go how you expected to but I would agree a hundred percent that if a parent goes right to the administration without ever talking to me as the teacher of that it it feels like an attack rather than a partnership mm-hmm. and and a team effort and and it also is showing your kids kind of the wrong model of dealing with conflict. You don't mm-hmm. actually have a conflict with the administrator, probably, unless they're being complicit in it, in it as well. Um, you're showing them this is the steps we take. And we're giving them an example of how to handle conflict. Like, like you said, what about outside of school, David? What if this is a neighborhood or a sports team or a, even church situation and you're dealing directly with the parents of of the bully you all set the stage well a little bit earlier in in commenting that you know at times we're going to encounter a parent who is rational and reasonable and we can join each other in partnership for the sake of our kids growth and development and at times that just is not possible and and i think in those times when it's not we have an opportunity to model something helpful for our kids. I really don't believe that's a wasted opportunity still. Like if I approach, you know, if we do all these steps and then I go with my son to talk with another parent and their son, 
to dialogue and it just goes off the rails. I've still got an opportunity with my son to talk about what it's like when I have control over some things and I don't have control over others. And then I think at that point, we then move into some important space of teaching kids boundaries and making decisions. Like what kind of decisions do I want to make in light of that? Okay. Mr. Jones was not interested in talking with me or brainstorming with me or working with me or hearing me. And so what kind of decisions do I want to make in light of that? And I think it's still opportunity that's there. So I don't think it's wasted. Yeah, that's so helpful. I think it's really important for us as parents to realize what you just said, you know, every moment that we have with our kids, whether it goes our way or it doesn't go our way, expected or unexpected is an opportunity for us to teach them something, yes. something. And, and it's, it's so important. So and, and I, I was just going to say that I also tell my kids that when they are handling conflict, whether it's a bully or not, that you can say what you need to say. You can defend yourself and, and, um, work through it after you've brainstormed and and figured out how could I handle this? And if the other person isn't receptive to that, you can remove yourself from the situation. And that, you know, that um, has happened over and over again. And it's the same thing with us. It's the same thing with adults. Like I'm not going to agree with everyone. And if I go to them and say, can we handle this in a civil way? And they don't, or they're not on the same page. I have to make that choice. Is it worth living in this? And going through that, or is it, or is it time to remove myself from the situation? And we've had that conversation. I have a middle schooler now. That conversation comes up a lot more now. Is it really worth being friends with them still after you've discussed it and and told them how you feel and nothing's changing? Um, And you know, are they pulling you down more than you're bringing them up? That type of thing. And again, that's that to me is such a perfect example of the beauty of conflict. Like we can actually celebrate the gift that you're having to have those conversations as hard as they are with your middle schooler, because the three of us know that will not stop in adulthood. Right. Right. We are still going to be climbing those same hills, fighting those same battles with grownups. Unfortunately. (laughs) Worse than kids. And so that skill set is invaluable because our kids are going to need that in their adult lives. And on the note that we mentioned before, we, we said that all this access to technology and social media and all of that has made it worse for our kids. It's made it worse for us. Mm-hmm. Like we, we have to, you know, we're not modeling conflict in front of our kids because a lot of it's happening online rather than face to face. And it's terrible. <laughs> like, like you said, everybody that has opinion says whatever they want without any accountability rather than talking face to face. And, um, so we have to equip them now while they're in our homes because they're going to encounter it wherever they go. So what if your child is the bully um, and how do you, how do you reach their heart? How do you turn things around for help turn things around for them? Cause you know, we can't change their hearts, but how can we reach their hearts for, for the Lord to, to change them around? Yes. I think one of uh, one of the most important places to start is maybe even back to that saying of hurt people, hurt people. So I think really beginning there, like what kind of hurt exists in the heart of my daughter and the heart of my son that would drive them to that kind of response in this season. And I think there's something about adding in this season to the end of that statement. That's important so that I'm not defining their character or their personhood long-term, but to say they're hurting in this season. So I want to understand more about what that's about. And I think sometimes we can do that, on our own or on our own in partnership with a teacher, with a children's minister. And then sometimes we need to pull in some other resources like a counselor, a specialist who helps us really do some digging in so we can get to an accurate place of understanding what's that hurt about that's driving that response. And then I think with kids, it's kind of back to that experiential keeping in mind. It's one of the primary ways that kids learn. So we want to avoid doing a lot of lecturing and we want to do a lot of practicing. So I, I think role play is an invaluable tool in, in that it is a practice and experiential context where I'm going to flip roles. All right, you be your teacher. I'm going to be you. All right, you be you. I'll be your teacher. So we're flipping in all moments so the kids have an opportunity to practice. And we're doing social coaching within those moments. And then I would say a third idea would be to really turn up the volume on what we call empathy building opportunities. And I think that can be everything from uh, 
getting a pet or if you're not in a season of getting a pet, then let's volunteer at an animal shelter or let's ask the next door neighbor if we can house sit, pet sit for them. Because I believe pets flex the empathy muscle right and left and Uh kids and adolescents and adults too, for that matter. Um, And volunteering, creating as much opportunity where they're in a posture of service as possible. And, and I would even say as a, a side note for the moms of and dads of boys who are listening, I want you to also think about paying really close attention to the number of hours that your son is clocking in competing. And, and I, I have found a lot of boys who've been stuck in what I wouldn't necessarily say are, are bullying postures, but, but bullying type postures because they spend so many hours or the, you know, 98% of their time in a competitive environment where they're always against someone else as opposed to being for them. And so it just, I think instinctively kind of postures boys where I'm always trying to beat you, win over you, dominate you, one up you. And, and, and obviously you all know everything I've read. I'm a huge advocate of youth sports. I love that outlet for boys, but I don't, I don't want that to be the only outlet where he exists. Uh And I think when it is, it's a bit of a setup for him to always he can become a really dominating person because he's always in that posture. So for that young man, I want to see him involved in service and scouts and some kind of opportunities where he is about giving as opposed to just competing, collaborating instead of just competing. Yeah. There was that again, another conversation that you and I had, there was something that you said that stuck with me and it was, if in doubt, put another pair of eyes on it. And the, the question that I was asking you was for a boy who maybe is having a hard time. When do we know when to get help for him? And I think that's such a good response is sometimes we're too close. Sometimes we can't see exactly what's happening because we're mom, because we're dad. And so if you have a doubt about whether or not something's happening, or if you feel like your child may be getting bullied or is the bully or needs help of any kind, there's nothing wrong with getting another pair of eyes, of putting another pair of eyes on it, um, you know, such as yourself or another trusted counselor uh, that can look at it from an objective standpoint <clears throat> and say, yeah, there is a struggle here. Or, you know what, I think you're okay. I think yeah. you can do this, this, and this, and you're going to be fine. Um, we, we need help sometimes. Um, and it's good. It's not going to hurt anything to ask for that kind of help. I love hearing you say over and over again to do role playing. I have my kids all the time when we're going through a situation, I'll be like, I was like, you need, you need to go into your teacher and talk about this. And I say, what are you going to say? And they're like, I'll I'll just say it, mom. And I'm like, no, let's practice. What are you going to say? And they think I'm ridiculous. And now I will say, David Thomas said role playing (laughs) is a good thing. They won't care. Like they don't know who David Thomas is. Um, somebody really important and smart said that this is a good thing. I'm not just crazy. And we, we do, we have those conversations. Cause I'm like, you're going to go in there and say, you know, something about even like about homework or whatever and say, I don't understand this. And she's going to be like, what do you not understand? And you need to be ready to pr- explain yourself. The same goes with, I don't like the way you're treating me. And what do you have to back that up? What do you have to say? And preparing them for that ahead of time um, is so important because then they don't freeze in the moment and forget everything that they've been feeling and thinking and all of that. Um, So thank you for saying that over and over again. (laughs) I love that idea. I believe in it so strongly. And, And I think to assume that our kids would automatically know what to say, particularly when it involves an adult to approach a teacher about you know, a grade they think might be wrong or to approach a coach to get more playing time is, is a little bit like assuming we would put a three-year-old on a bicycle and they would just know how to ride it like that. Those skills have to be practiced. And we have actually a, a blueprint for navigating conflict that we printed in our new book in the social milestones. And we talk about that very thing, like practices with kids. They don't instinctively know how to do this, you know, that no kid knows how to do it. And, and, we even, it's fascinating, my sissy got with a group of junior and senior girls in a group recently asked every one of them, I think there were like eight girls in the room, she was like, how many of you feel like you know how to do that? And not a one raised her hand. You know, I mean, just this reality that we don't instinctively know to do that. It has to be taught in practice. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I think uh, we've, we talk often about the whole extrovert, introvert, like Brooke, Brooke is an introvert, I'm an extrovert, but like going beyond that in personality types, like my personality type avoids conflict and painful emotions at all costs, like run away from them. And if that's what my natural bent is, then if I'm not practicing and talking with my kids about it, that's going to be my natural reaction. Whereas other, other personality types might be the perfectionist type where it's like, you have to, it has to look like this. So I'm going to tell you exactly what to say and do this. So if you're not practicing, you know, natural conflict resolution, not every word rehearsed for yourself, like going through it with teaching it with your kids, you're just going to fix it for them instead of, instead of practicing it. So I think it's really important also in this whole conversation of your kid being bullied or being the bully that you understand their personality as opposed to your own and factor that into how you work through all of these things. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This has been amazing. I like, can we have you back like every month? Because (laughs) I feel like there's a million things we could talk about and I'm going to go back and rewatch this because sometimes I have a notepad next to me and I take down notes during this, but I would have been writing the entire time and I thought that'd be rude. (laughs) (laughs) but really 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 good stuff um we're you know we probably will have to have you back again and um i'd be honored to come back you all are so enjoyable to talk with i'd be honored to come back thank you awesome well okay so you you guys have we just want to real quickly tell everybody where they can find you i just looked at the clock and realized we're 15 minutes over so i apologize to everyone it was just so great that we went over but um tell everybody where they can find you you have a new podcast i believe tell us where uh tell our listeners where they can connect with you guys to find out more and stay connected with you all we do have a new podcast, and if you were to just jump on our website, RaisingBoysAndGirls.com, you could find everything. It'll link you to everything. It'll take you straight to the podcast. It will take you to our blog. It will um, identify our resources, the books that are out there. Our The podcast is actually based on our newest book, Are My Kids on Track? And so if so you're not good. a leader, or I met with a couple yesterday for a parent consultation that I was like, David, I think what you're saying is great, but I'm not going to read your book. I just had to tell you that right now. I'm like, it's okay. There's a podcast. You can listen. <laughs> That's if great. Were to, if you were to jump on RaisingBoysAndGirls.com, uh, it'll take you there. That's awesome. David, thank you so much. Again, this has been so insightful. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I appreciate your voice because you, you caused me to pump the brakes just a little bit and look at the truth of the situation rather than allowing my emotions to take away or allowing other people to define for me something that maybe isn't quite what I thought it was. So I have so appreciated your voice on this. Thank you so much for being with us. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com 